0: Part Second, Chapter 1 of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part Second, The Isabels. Chapter 1. Through good and evil report in the barring fortune of that struggle which Don José had characterized in the phrase, the fate of national honesty trembles in the balance, the gold concession, Imperion in imperio, had gone on working. The square mountain had gone on pouring its treasure down the wooden shoots to the unresting batteries of stamps. The lights of San Tomé had twinkled night after night upon the great, limitless shadow of the campo every three months the silver escort had gone down to the sea as if neither the war nor its consequences could ever affect the ancient occidental state secluded beyond its high barrier of the cordillera all the fighting took place on the other side of that mighty wall of serrated peaks lorded over by the white dome of Higuerota and as yet unbreached by the railway of which only the first part the easy campo part from sulaco of the Ibi Valley, at the foot of the pass had been laid neither did the telegraph line cross the mountains yet its poles like slender beacons on the plain penetrated into the forest fringe of the foothills cut by the deep avenue of the track and its wire ended abruptly at the construction camp at a white deal table supporting a morse apparatus in a long hut of planks with a corrugated iron roof overshadowed by gigantic cedar trees the quarters of the engineer in charge of the advance section. The harbour was busy too, with the traffic and railway material and with the movements of troops along the coast. The OSN Company found much occupation for its fleet. Costaguana had no navy, and apart from a few Coast Guard cutters, there were no national ships except a couple of old merchant steamers used as transports. Captain Mitchell, feeling more and more in the thick of history found time for an hour or so during an afternoon in the drawing-room of the casa gould where with a strange ignorance of the real forces at work around him he professed himself delighted to get away from the strain of affairs he did not know what he would have done without his invaluable nostromo he declared those confounded costaguana politics gave him more work he confided to mrs gould than he had bargained for Don José Avellanos had displayed in the service of the endangered Riviera government an organizing activity and an eloquence of which the echoes reach over even Europe. For, after the new loan to the Riviera government, Europe had become interested in Costaguana. The sala of the provincial assembly, in the municipal buildings of Sulaco, with its portraits of the liberators on the walls and an old flag of Cortes, preserving the glass case about the president's chair, had heard all these speeches, the early one containing the impassioned declaration, militarism is the enemy, the famous one of the trembling balance, delivered on the occasion of the boot for the raising of the 2nd, 2nd Sulaco Regiment in the defense of reforming government, and when the provinces again displayed their old flags, proscribing Guzman Bento's time, there was another of those great orators when don jose greeted these old emblems of the war of independence brought out again in the name of new ideals the old idea of federalism had disappeared for his part he did not wish to revive all political doctrines they were perishable they died but the doctrine of political rectitude was immortal the second sulago regiment to whom he was presenting this flag was going to show its valor in a contest for order, peace, progress, for the establishment of national self-respect without which, he declared with energy, we are a reproach and a byword amongst the powers of the world. Don José Avellanos loved his country. He had served it lavishly with his fortune during his diplomatic career, and the later story of his captivity and barbarous ill usage under Guzman Bento was well known to his listeners. It was a wonder that he had not been a victim of the ferocious and summary executions which marked the course of that tyranny, for Guzman had ruled the country with the sombre imbecility of political fanaticism. The power of supreme government had become in his dull mind an object of strange worship, as if it were some sort of cruel deity. It was incarnated in himself and in his adversaries, the federalists were the supreme sinners objects of hate abhorrence and fear as heretics would be to a convinced inquisitor for years he had carried about at the tail of the army of pacification all over the country a captive band of such atrocious criminals who considered themselves most unfortunate at not having been summarily executed it was a diminishing company of nearly naked skeletons loaded with irons, covered with dirt, with vermin, with raw wounds, all men of position, of education, of wealth, who had learned to fight amongst themselves for scraps of rotten beef thrown to them by soldiers, or to beg a negro cook for a drink of muddy water in pitiful accents. Don José Abellanos, clanking his chains amongst the others, seemed only to exist in order to prove how much hunger pain, degradation, and cruel torture, a human body can stand without parting with the last spark of life. Sometimes interrogatories, backed by some primitive method of torture, were administered to them by a commission of officers hastily assembled in a hut of sticks and branches, and made pitiless by the fear for their own lives. A lucky one or two of that spectral company of prisoners would perhaps be led tottering behind a bush to be shot by a file of soldiers always an army chaplain some unshaven dirty man girt with a sword and with a tiny cross embroidered in white cotton on the left breast of a lieutenant's uniform would follow cigarette in the corner of the mouth wooden stool in hand to hear the confession and give an absolution for the citizen sabur of the country because Mabinto was called thus officially in petitions was not averse from the exercise of ra- rational clemency The irregular report of the firing squad would be heard, followed sometimes by a single finishing shot. A little bluish cloud of smoke would float up above the green bushes, and the army of pacification would move on over the savannas, through the forests, crossing rivers, invading rural pueblos, devastating the haciendas of the horrid aristocrats, occupying the inland towns in the fulfillment of its patriotic mission, and leaving behind a united land, wherein the evil taint of federalism could no longer be detected in the smoke of burning houses and the smell of spilt blood. Don José Abellanos had survived that time. Perhaps, when contemptuously signifying to him his release, the citizen-savior of the country might have thought this benighted aristocrat too broken in health and spirit and fortune to be any longer dangerous. Or, perhaps, it might have been a simple caprice. Guzman Bento, usually full of fanciful fears and brooding suspicions, had sudden access of unreasonable self-confidence when he perceived himself elevated on a pinnacle of power and safety beyond the reach of mere mortal plotters. At such times he would impulsively command the celebration of a solemn mass of thanksgiving, which would be sung in great pomp in the cathedral of Santa Marta by the trembling, subservient archbishop of his creation. He heard it sitting in a gilt armchair placed before the high altar, surrounded by the civil and military heads of his government. The unofficial world of Santa Marta would crowd into the cathedral, for it was not quite safe for anybody of Mark to stay away from these manifestations of presidential piety. Having thus acknowledged the only power he was at all disposed to recognize as above himself he would scatter acts of political disgrace in a sardonic wantonness of clemency. There was no other way left now to enjoy his power, but by seeing his crushed adversaries crawl impotently into the light of day, out of the dark, noisome cells of the collegio. Their harmlessness fed his insatiable vanity, and they could always be got hold of again. It was the rule for all the women of their families to present thanks afterwards in a special audience. The incarnation of that strange god, el gobierno supremo, received them standing, cocked hat on head, and exhorted them in a menacing mutter to show their gratitude by bringing up their children in fidelity to the democratic form of government, which I have established for the happiness of our country his front teeth having been knocked out in some accident of his former herdsman's life his utterance was a spluttering and indistinct he had been working for costaguana along in the midst of treachery and opposition let it cease now lest he should become weary of forgiving don jose avellanos had known this forgiveness he was broken in health and fortune the enough to present a truly gratifying spectacle the supreme chief of democratic institutions he retired to sulaco his wife had an estate in that province and she nursed him back to life out of the house of death and captivity when she died their daughter an only child was old enough to devote herself to poor papa miss avellanos born in europe and educated partly in england was a tall grave girl with a self-possessed manner a wide wide forehead a wealth of rich brown hair and blue eyes. The other young ladies of Sulaco stood in awe of her character and accomplishments. She was reputed to be terribly learned and serious. As to pride, it was well known that all the Corbelans were proud, and her mother was a Corbelan. Don Jose Abellanos depended very much upon the devotion of his beloved Antonia. He accepted it in the benighted way of men who, who made in God's image are like stone idols without sense before the smoke of certain burnt-offerings. He was ruined in every way, but a man possessed of passion is not a bankrupt in life. Don José Avellanos desired passionately for his country, peace, prosperity, and, as the end of the preface to fifty years of miserable it, an honourable place in the committee of civilized nations. In this last phrase the minister Plenipotentiary, cruelly humiliated by the bad faith of his government towards the foreign bondholders, stands disclosed in the Patriot. The fatuous turmoil of greedy factions succeeding the tyranny of Guzmán Bento seemed to bring his desire to the very door of opportunity. He was too old to descend personally into the centre of the arena at Santa Marta, but the men who acted there sought his advice at every step he himself thought that he could be most useful at a distance in sulaco his name his connections his former position his experience commanded the respect of his class the discovery that this man living in dignified poverty in the corbelan town residence opposite the casa gould could dispose of material means towards the support of the cause increased his influence it was his open letter of appeal that decided the candidature of don vicente riviera for the presidency another of these informal state papers drawn out by don jose this time in the shape of an address from the province induced that scrupulous constitutionalist to accept the extraordinary powers conferred upon him for five years by a overwhelming vote of congress in santa marta it was a specific mandate to establish the prosperity of the people on the basis of firm peace at home and to redeem the national credit by the satisfaction of all just claims abroad. On the afternoon the news of that boat had reached Sulaco by the usual roundabout postal way, through Caita and up the coast by steamer. Don José, who had been waiting for the mail in the ghoul's drawing-room, got out of the rocking-chair, letting his hat fall off his knees. He rubbed his silvery, short hair with both hands, speechless with excessive excess of joy. "'Emilia, my soul,' he had burst out, "'let me embrace you, let me—' "'Captain Michel,' he, had he been there, would no doubt have made an apt remark about the dawn of a new era. But Don José thought something of the kind. His eloquence failed him on this occasion. The inspirer of that revival of the Blanco party tottered where he stood. Mrs. Good moved forward quickly, and, as she offered her cheek with a smile to her old friend, managed very cleverly to give him the support of her arm he really needed. Don José had recovered himself at once, but for a time he could do more, nothing that murmur, Oh, you two patriots, oh, you two patriots, looking from one to the other. Vague plans of another historical work, wherein all the devotions to the regeneration of the country he loved would be enshrined for the reverent worship of posterity, flitted through his mind. The historian who had enough elevation of Saul to write of Guzman Bento, yet this monster, imbrued in the blood of his countrymen, must not be held unreservedly to the execration of future years. It appears to be true that he, too, loved his country. He had given it twelve years of peace, and absolute master of lives and fortunes as he was, he died poor. His worst fault, perhaps, was not his ferocity, but his ignorance. The man who could write those of a cruel persecutor, the passage occurs in his history of misrule, felt at the foreshadowing of success an almost boundless affection for his two helpers. For these two young people from over the sea just as years ago calmly from the conviction of practical necessity stronger than any abstract political doctrine henry gould had drawn the sword so now the times being changed charles gould had flung the silver of the saint tome into the fray the english of sulaco the costaguana englishman of the third generation was as far from being a political intriguer as his uncle from a revolutionary Schwarzbrockler. Springing from the instinctive uprightness of their natures, their action was recent. They saw an opportunity and used the weapon to hand. Charles Gould's position, a commanding position, in the background of an attempt to retrieve the peace and the credit of the Republic, was very clear. At the beginning he had had to accommodate himself to existing circumstances of corruption so naively bracing as to disarm the hate of a man courageous enough not to be afraid of its irresponsible potency to ruin everything it touched. It seemed to him too contemptible for hot anger even. He made use of it with a cold, fearless scorn, manifested rather than concealed by the forms of a stony courtesy which did away with much of the ignominy of the situation. At bottom, perhaps, he suffered from it, for he was not a man of cowardly illusions, but he refused to discuss the ethical view with his wife. He trusted that, though a little disenchanted, she would be intelligent enough to understand that this character safeguarded the enterprise of their lives as much or as more than his policy the extraordinary development of the mine had put a great power into his hands. To feel that prosperity always at the mercy of intelligent greed had grown irksome to him. To Mrs. Gould it was humiliating. At any rate, it was dangerous. In the confidential communications passing between Charles Gould, the king of Sulaco, and the head of the silver and steel interests far away in California, the convictions were growing that any attempt made by men of education and integrity ought to be discreetly supported. You might tell your friend, Avellanos, that I think so, Mr. Holroyd had written, at the proper moment, from his inviolable sanctuary within the eleven-story-high factory of great affairs, and shortly afterwards, with the credit open by the third southern bank, located next door but one to the Holroyd building, the Ribierist party in Costaguana took a practical shape under the eye of the administrator of the Santome tome mine. And, Don José, the hereditary friend of the Gould cool family, could say, Perhaps, my dear Carlos, I shall not have believed in vain. End of Part second, Chapter 1